Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and uh, as always, joined by co-host Dr. Kenneth Howell, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. We're working through the uh, the Book of Romans, and uh, our plan was to start Chapter 5 today. That's where we had drawn ourselves after the last few weeks, and in case you're just joining us, you can access all of those programs uh, at deepinscripture.com. But we received an email uh, that made Ken and I pause a bit and kind of reminded us of something we had planned to do, but it really fit, and that is to take a pause from Romans for a moment and jump over to James chapter 2, where uh, the Apostle James deals with the very issues that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 3 and 4. And the email from Jack said, Dear Marcus and Ken, I really appreciate the way you've been discussing St. Paul's doctrine of justifications in Romans on deep in Scripture. The question that keeps coming up in my mind is how this all relates to what St. James says in James chapter 2, 14 through 16 about faith and works. At one point, James says, You see that a man is justified from works and not from faith alone. Does this contradict Paul's teaching? How would you explain this problem? You know, I'm wondering, Ken, before we jump into James, which is a wider expression of that, maybe flesh out a little bit what Jack is getting at, because this really is a conundrum between those that want to hold so tightly to the way they interpret Romans, and yet how do you deal with James in this statement at the same time? Well, it's it's a great question, and it's a question that uh, Christians have struggled with since the very first days in which these uh, they they had the New Testament together and they looked at these texts. It's an important question because, um, for several reasons, one of which it, it really brings up the matter of how easy it is to misinterpret uh, Scripture and why it's important to carefully attend to the meanings of that the writers are using. And we'll talk about that in, in a little bit more in just a moment. It also points out, however, the need to listen to the wisdom of those that have gone before us in the faith and see how they have dealt with this question. Because on the surface, let's say the casual reader, the un unlettered reader might read both Paul and then James, and then the person who's only attending carefully to the words for the first time might indeed arrive at the conclusion that Paul and James contradict one another. But uh, I think we'll see today that's not the case. As long as we look at the words carefully and listen to the wisdom uh, of the past, there's a third reason why Jack's question is so important, and that is that this has traditionally divided Protestants and Catholics for centuries. Mm. And so if we can uh, somehow understand these texts a little bit more carefully uh, with in relation to one another, that may also illuminate some of the uh, both the differences that still remain, but also the commonalities between Protestants and Catholics. You know, Ken, I was thinking of a text from uh, Galatians chapter 5, Um, which it's almost as if St. Paul in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 5 Galatians fully realizes 
that people might misunderstand what he's trying to say and what maybe James in the early days of Christianity was recognizing amongst the dispersed Christians as they were trying to live out the words of Christ. Because Paul says in Galatians 5, beginning with verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, so there we have Paul saying, now wait a second, you know, you have this freedom in Christ through your faith, through the grace you've been given. You are a new creature in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians. But don't, you know, don't misinterpret what this freedom means. Uh, mm-hmm. That this, what this freedom does, it frees you to love. It frees yes, you to yes. love. In essence, that's what James is going to get in this whole book, is about that freedom to love, to live out your faith in love. And uh, uh, Ken, why don't we then jump into James? And what I'd like to do, uh, in essence, this entire program is, is going to be an answer to Jack's email question. And we're going to focus on James chapter 2. But before we get to James chapter 2, we really need to uh, look at James chap- the entire chapter 1. Because just in the sense in which the way we're, we're slowly working through Romans, Ken, that seeing the entire context of the, the gospel, I mean, excuse me, the letter of James is important. And I want to jump, if I can, uh, for a second to, before we jump even to James chapter 1, is that James chapter 4, verse 7 is important in the sense that James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The reason I wanted to emphasize that is that James realizes fully that we are in a spiritual battle. Every Christian is in a spiritual battle. The devil is very real. Pope Francis very recently has emphasized that once again, although the liberals in the church that want to keep putting Pope Francis in a, in a different kind of box than I think Pope Francis wants to be put into, there he is emphasizing the uh, the, the essentials of the faith, and one of those essentials is that we are in a spiritual battle, every one of us, mm. living out our faith. And the danger of faith alone, the whole danger of the faith alone idea, is that it can, it can uh, make us susceptible to the temptations mm. of the devil to over-interpret over-apply the freedoms that we have in Christ to go to the other extreme, the other extreme away from works, away from the law, to a libertarianism. And the devil is behind that. And Ken, hey, we live in a culture that's running wild with those freedoms. 
in, in the denial and the ignorance of the spiritual battle that is present in every single person that lives in America. Well, that's right. And, and what you read from Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, when it said that you've been called to freedom, only don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh or occasion for disobedience, but serve one another through love. I, I think that really poses these diff- different ways of understanding freedom. And, and, and Catholic moral theologians have done a, a wonderful job in explicating this, especially Cervais uh, Pinker's uh, recently, um, I think perhaps deceased but retired Dominican. Cervais uh, Pinker's says that the modern person thinks of freedom as the freedom of indifference. That is, it's indifferent what I do as long as I don't hurt somebody else. That was what John Stuart Mill talked about. And I wrote an article in about this in the, the Catholic Answers magazine for Catholic Answers out in California. This different conception of freedom. The Christian conception of freedom is a freedom of an internal freedom and freedom of the heart that allows you in freedom to give yourself in love to another. Because as long as we're held by the vices of this world, we're not free to give ourselves to others. So that verse in Galatians 4.13 is so relevant to our discussion today because we are locked into battle with the evil one, and the evil one wants to distort our very concepts of freedom to serve our own um, evil uh, vices rather than to help us to live in love with one another. So uh, to a certain extent, we, we really, like all the letters in the New Testament, um, don't know a lot of the background behind this letter of James, uh, the community to which he's writing to, where he's writing from. We just don't know a lot of that. Um, I think the presumption that I I uh, agree with uh, is that this letter would have been written before the fall of Jerusalem, and so uh, you know he's writing to this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know he's become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, right? I mean I think this is the James mm-hmm. we're talking about here, and he's, yeah, that's that's, mm-hmm. and he's distributing uh, almost like a. Uh, you know, we now have papal encyclicals. Well, this is the, a letter from the Bishop of Jerusalem to those Christians who, for a variety of reasons, have been driven away from Jerusalem and are out. And, well, that's what we find in the book of Acts, isn't it? I mean, we find there that Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So what we find here, as you say, I think, uh, so we, we take this as being James the bishop, the first bishop of Jerusalem, and now he's writing to, using Jewish language, the, the, the language of dispersion, but writing to the Christians who now are dispersed, not as a judgment, but as a command of God to go out and take the gospel into all the world. And who are those 12 tribes? Well, this is the collection of the church. And this is James seeing the church and its members as the new Israel spread throughout the world. So it begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion's greeting. And so the important thing here is to realize that James is not writing an evangelistic letter to non-believers. He's writing to Christians. Mm -hmm. And so 
he's recognizing that believers in Jesus Christ need to keep growing. That, to me, is the most important part about James, that it's a community of believers that need to keep growing. And so he's talking about how do you keep growing in faith in Jesus Christ? You have faith in Christ. All the people he's writing to are in Christ. And we can presume they've all been baptized into Christ. We know that was, the, that was always the truth of the church. You enter the church through baptism and faith. And so he says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, Ken, immediately, he's alluding to the fact that these Christians who've put faith in Christ are already struggling to live out their faith. And in that way, James's letter, isn't it, a letter of advice and encouragement much like the book of Proverbs, and some people have made that comparison, some readers of the book, because, for example, in verse 5, he goes right on to say, if any of you is lacking wisdom, this is kind of the New Testament wisdom literature, and he deals with the concrete situations of life. You know, how do you respond to this? What do you do? What's your heart thinking in this particular situation? And as you said, his goal is precisely, as it states in verse 3, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He knows there's a journey of faith. You've begun that journey of faith by faith and baptism, but now go on beyond that. And where does that take you? And now that's what he's going to lay out for us here. You see the, the path where it, it begins with faith in Christ, becoming a part of the body of Christ, and then trials come. This morning in the office of readings, it was from Philippians, and there was that wonderful verse that says we have been called not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for Christ. And so that's mm-hmm. both apart, so that you, you have your faith, and those are then tested But through the testing comes steadfastness, and that steadfastness has its full effect that leads to perfection and the completion. In that sense, Ken, James is directly parallel with with the writings of St. Paul that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, you know, the the maturity leading all the way to the fullness in Christ. There's this journey of faith. And the reason I am that I want to emphasize that is that that is the background to understanding why faith alone isn't sufficient, because that mm-hmm. faith must be tested, it must be persevered, it must be shown, it must be demonstrated, and it must be lived out. And James felt that was so important that he writes this letter. Yeah, well, St. Peter puts that a little differently, but nevertheless, the same point And that is, he speaks about our our faith being tested like gold in the fire. So when the fire burns the dross away, the solid, perfect gold is there waiting. And that's what our faith needs. It needs to be tested so that it can be perfected over time. I'm wondering, Ken, if it's also important to point out that, you know, we read 2,000 years later with the presumption that we know the letters of Paul and the wisdom of Paul and all of Paul's theology, and often Mm -hmm. 
Christians today almost only read the words of Jesus through the lenses of St. Paul. But it's, mm-hmm. it's equally likely that James is just reading the wisdom of Jesus straight from his experience of Jesus Christ and not through the lenses of St. Paul because they're probably writing about the same time. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I say that is that when he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. So, so Ken, when we're talking about the wisdom and maybe the new wisdom literature, behind this is the Sermon on the Mount. Behind James is the Sermon on the Mount as the new law that our Lord Jesus established in the beginning of his ministry as the foundation to all that Jesus taught is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's the wisdom that forms the basis for everything in James. I think so, and I think it also emphasizes in James chapter 1 that the underlying tone is also, there's the message of Jesus, but, but what is that? What was that message? Well, part of that message was uh, that God is there um, underneath every trial, every difficulty. He's there to answer our prayers. So, for example, in verses 5 through 8, that's where he says asking wisdom uh, from God. God is there to give wisdom. But who does God give wisdom to? Well, he gives it to the humble brother. That's verses 9 through 11. And not to the haughty, but to those that are humble. And then verse 12 uh, it tells us about the God who doesn't tempt and cannot be tempted. So to understand that when we're facing temptation, that temptation is coming from another source than God but God is there to help us in the midst of that temptation. One of the key verses that almost everyone knows is, is about this love for riches, the love for money and the, and the problems that that will cause. And we see in verse um, 11, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James wants to emphasize the call to simplicity. And that call to simplicity is a key aspect of living out our faith in the world. Um, And that's, again, the background to so much of what James will say. In verse 12, blessed is the man who endures trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There's the call to the Christian to live out your faith. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Can In this, we see a little bit of parallel to 1 John, where John talks about the sin unto death, and there's a sin that's not unto death which is the foundational theology to mortal and venial sin. We see that in James here, that there are levels of sin. It begins yeah. with temptation. We get lured away. We start to fail. And then if that gets into full-blown sin, full-grown sin, then it becomes yeah. mortal. And this is the problem of the human struggle, isn't it? Because when our when we give in to the small little desires that are not right, not leading us to God, we don't see them growing, but they grow over time. And when they grow over time, suddenly we realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm not in control, it's in control of me. 
And so uh, that, I think that's that's the process that James is, is talking about here. Um, there's so much more here. Uh, I don't know exactly what you want to emphasize, but one thing that strikes me here that leads us into chapter 2 is all the way down in verses 22 and 23 where James says, um, <clears throat> be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now this is really important for understanding this issue of faith and works. That there's a call in the New Testament, you might say, to put our money where our mouth is, to really live the Christian life, not just talk about it. Yeah, the, um, oh yeah, like, like you said, Ken, there's so much in this whole thing, uh, this whole first chapter that, uh, but it is a, a forms a background to this in the sense that chapter two becomes almost a commentary on the very verse you just read. Uh, when he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observes his natural face in the mirror. You know, the um, what does that mean? And that becomes chapter two. How does this get fleshed mm-hmm. out? Because it, it seems to me that James is already dealing with Christians that think they've arrived. You know, they've, they, they've yeah. been pulled out of paganism. They're now part of the church. They've accepted Christ as their Savior, and they've arrived. But they're already being, as verse 16, they're being deceived. The devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil are, are tempting yeah. them to become lax, uh, yeah. giving lip service to Jesus. And as he'll deal with the problem of the tongue, uh, you know, challenging one another on what it really means to be a Christian. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it's really an important point. And when you mentioned there the, the people that were brought out of paganism and then they were in the church and they think, well, I've arrived and so forth, it shows how easily uh, paganism can re-enter the church through the hearts of the members of the church. And you see that today. I mean, when you think of, when you think of those churches which call themselves Christian, the very fact that they could even contemplate uh, a blessing upon same-sex unions yeah. is a is a great example of how paganism has re-entered the church. Or, on the other hand, those that would say reduce basically the, being a Christian to a means to gaining wealth and fame and so forth and so on. It's clearly not taught in the New Testament, and yet they've distorted the message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, into a way of gaining a great gain, as Paul, which Paul clearly condemns in Second Second Timothy. So, what he's saying here is, don't be like those who look in a mirror and forget their natural face. Don't look into the law of God and then walk away with it, with uh, from it, as if it were have no significance for you. James is a clear call to a life of obedience and a life of sacrifice, a life of trial. And nevertheless, this is the path that leads to eternal life. But that takes commitment to being on the path. Let me go back then, Ken, and and just summarize also quickly verses 19 through 27 then. He really deals there with one important issue, and that is that... Because by grace, through faith, we are in Jesus Christ does not mean that we're now perfect. And that he's addressing the fact that these Christians 
call themselves Christians, yet can't get along. Many of them haven't even changed the way they used to be. He says in my, one of my favorite verses in Scripture in verse 19, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Well, that's the exact opposite of what usually happens. Most people are slow to hear and quick to speak and qu- even quicker to anger. I mean, that's what I've seen in churches all the years that I've worked as a pastor. I mean, you can with a pastor. How many times good Christian brothers and sisters are just at each other's throats? And then oh, yeah. Paul yeah. says in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rank growth of weaknesses and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James is beckoning to us to break through the barriers of our self-centeredness and to let the word of Christ change us from within, be doers of the, let that word change our lives, not just listening to it, but deceive ourselves, he's saying. You know, and, and he, he, verse 26, uh, well, in verse 26, he deals with the fact that usually the problems, you know, they go on inside of us. And yeah. for a while we control them, but pretty soon it's our tongue that lets them loose at each yeah. other. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it undercuts everything that our religion calls us to be. Yeah, that's right. Mm, yeah. And uh, one more thing, Ken, I'm, I'm getting here, verse 25, the perfect law, the law of liberty, you know, uh, seems to me a, a good backdrop to what we're getting with in chapter 2, because the perfect law is that summation that he will give later, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. I mean, there's the summation, our Lord says, of the entire law. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's that which we break when we allow the world, the flesh, and the devil to grab hold of our tongue and then to use that to destroy a brother or a sister. Well, I see then at the end of that chapter, as you were pointing it there about verse 26, that if a man seems to be religious, he bridles his tongue and he serves others. This man is true religion as opposed to those that have vain religion. Yeah, and that's to be, I mean, there's that call to reach out to the poor and the widows in verse 27 and uh, to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Okay, we'll come back after the break and we'll jump right into chapter two with that foundational background. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Thank you. 
Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Kenneth Howell, and we're today we're we're taking a, a break from Romans to look at the book of James, and partially in response to an email that we mentioned earlier. Um, and the the email question was really on the issue of James chapter two, fourteen through sixteen, dealing with the question of where James says, "You see that a man is justified from." from works and not from faith alone. And so what about that question of faith and works that seem to be uh, um, at odds between Paul and James? Uh, and, you know, in verse 27, I, I'm delaying our jump into chapter 2 again, Ken, I'm sorry. But James' religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself abstained from the world. You know, once again, he's emphasizing that our faith, pure faith, is a giving of ourselves to others. It's not merely this personal faith alone. It's, it has to be lived out, and he emphasizes it over and over and over, which is the backdrop to chapter 2. And let me read, mm-hmm. for those of you that don't have scriptures in front of you, uh, let me read the first part of James chapter 2, and Ken, then uh, you know, jump in and draw us forward to the topic that we're, we're looking into. James writes, My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man with gold rings and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Here, sit here, please. While you say to the poor man, Stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into the court? Is it not they who blaspheme that honorable name which was invoked over you? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, self, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, Ken, in this whole context, in the end of chapter 1 and then chapter 2, he wants to deal with this issue of true faith is worked out in, in the, works, of the uh, works of faith. But why does he digress, it seemingly, if so, 
into this discussion of their impartiality or showing to people coming to worship on Sunday, giving front row seats to the rich as opposed to leaving the making the poor have the back seats. I mean, why does he digress into this subject? Well, I think what he's trying to do is to show that in a way it's not a digression because what he's trying to say is that uh, <clears throat> let me give you an example of how you love your neighbor as yourself. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 27 that you read, he said pure religion, religion that is pure and undefiled, before God our, our God and Father is this. And he gives two things, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction, and secondly, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I think what he's doing in verse 27 there is he's giving the two commandments, but he's giving the one to love your neighbor f- first. He's saying to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction is to love your neighbor as yourself, and to keep yourself unspotted from the world that's to love God. Now, he gives a concrete situation which is showing how easy it is to violate these commandments. And that's the situation that you read in, in chapter 2. When you think about the ways in which there's no such thing as a totally egalitarian society. It just doesn't exist. And it almost can never exist. Uh, let's think of uh, Marxism and communism in, in Russia. and various, That was their proclamation, to do away with a classless society. And what did the Soviet Union become from 1917 to about 1990? It, became a, it was a class-filled society, yep. with those in the Communist Party being you know, the, the elite and the privileged and those that were just the proletariat or the workers down there. The, you can't get rid of a classless society James is not giving a social solution. He's giving a solution of how you treat other people. You're not going to be able to deal with poverty completely, but you can't deal with those, those poor people uh, as if they're subhuman. You, and you shouldn't be dealing with the rich and the powerful by placating them. You should be treating them as brothers and sisters within the church. And that's how you fulfill the royal law. And this problem... I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. I was going to say, and this problem that James is dealing with here exists to this day and is the common temptation, whether you're the pastor of a little country church or whether you're the church of the Basilica downtown, is this constant struggle with treating everyone equally yeah. in the eyes think, of God. And think of societies that where this is embedded in their very cultural history like India and the caste system. And I have I have I'm not looking at this as just as an outsider. I have friends from India and they've taught they've talked to me and told me about this how this caste system f- shapes the mind that people that you know people that are in the lower class caste those people you know, are the despised, and then there's people in the upper caste, and they're honored. So Christianity is is not egalitarianism, but it's a, a treatment of love, of equal love uh, for all. But even within the church, we face the same problem. We honor those who, you know, who have who have money or who have power positions of influence, and because I myself at times have been perceived as someone who is you know, I guess you might say more learned in scripture than other people. I know that at times I've been, you know, 
catered to, and I shouldn't be anymore. Neither the, the Pope should. And that's one of the great things about Pope Francis is that he is trying to call us back to this fundamental love of brother and sister, just as John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Mother Teresa in our, our own lifetimes have been calling us back to this foundational love of our brothers and sisters. Yeah, it comes to mind two, two movies that I've both seen recently, uh, and both of them are all about this class struggle that exists in cultures, um, and probably about the same time, the one movie, which is now the 75th anniversary of Gone with the Wind, I mean, that whole movie is about the passing away of a, yeah, of a society in the South that was very much based on yeah. class, and the other movie that comes to my mind is My Fair Lady, uh, where you know the idea yeah. was you could just take anybody and by just a little education, you know, move them up to society. And there was a struggle about that. And there's one line in My Fair Lady, which where uh, uh, Eliza Doolittle confronts the professor about the way he treats people differently, and he says, "No, I treat everybody the same." Well, he did. He treated everybody bad. <laughs> and, you know, Less than him, right? <laughs> right. We're called we're, we're called to treat everyone better than ourselves, not worse exactly. than ourselves, which is what the professor did in uh, My Fair Lady. Yeah, and, that's true. and that's what this is all about: with our tongues, with our lives, with our heart, we are to live out our faith. Uh, verses eight through thirteen, Ken, as an introduction to the the second half. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. If you do not commit adultery but do kill, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, yet mercy triumphs over judgment. Ken, what is this law of liberty, the royal law that James keeps referring to? Well, it, it makes perfect sense both in a Hebrew context and in a Greek one because the royal law, the law that comes from the king, is a law that leads us to liberty, uh, not into slavery. And what is that liberty? Well, that liberty is a liberty that comes from obedience. I think in verses 10, especially 11, where he speaks about stumbling in one point, you're still guilty of the whole law. What he's saying there is this, that to that to be disobedient to God is not an offense against some principle in a book somewhere. It's against the lawgiver. And so that's why that's why if you do not commit adultery but you murder, then you're still guilty because it's the same God who gave that law. So your 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 um, your obedience is also le- is leading you to that God. Your disobedience is leading you away from that God. What is that God like? Verses twelve and thirteen suggest that James puts front and center that God is a God of mercy and that therefore we ought to be people of mercy. That means giving people the better part of the doubt. That means giving, making judgments that are positive but not negative. And so James is leading right into this question, what does your faith really mean? 
Well, he's giving the examples of what it means to live out our faith, and that leads us right into the the passage James two fourteen through twenty six that um, that Jack had asked us about. James writes, beginning with verse fourteen, "What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but has not works? Can his faith save him?" If a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, Ken, it seems that we've got to clarify right away the word works here versus the use of that term in Paul, where very often it's works of the law. Well, that's a very good point. In fact, we'll read in just a moment where he goes on to say that in verse uh, 23, uh, no, yeah, in 23 he says, um, he gives an example of Abraham. And then in 24 he says, you see then that a man is not, is justified from works and not from faith alone. Now what now what does he mean here? Now Paul says that a man is justified by faith and not by works. But James says that a man is justified by works. So if they mean the same thing, then they're in contradiction. But that's what I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the program when I said this is where you must attend carefully and think about the meaning of the words. When Paul uses the word works, when he says that we're not justified by works, he further explains that everywhere is we're not justified by works of the law, meaning the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law, all of those, the circumcision, that's not what justifies us. But what James is talking about is works that grow out of faith. In other words, this is the works that the Christian does by these kinds of laws, by these kinds of works, a person is justified. And that's why they're not in contradiction. James means works of faith. Paul means works of the law. I, to put that into a modern context, um, if you walk by the poor, the widows, the unclothed, the starving to make sure you get to mass on time yeah yeah that's in essence a a comparison of a work of the law versus a work of mercy Uh, certainly Mm -hmm. by going to worship we receive the graces of the sacraments we are fulfilling the law of the church and that's all uh, enables us to receive the graces we need to be pleasing to God. Yeah. But if we don't act on those graces the way we're called to, which is, yeah. as Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know, feeding, uh, clothing, giving shelter, the basic needs that, hey, we, we've received the resources to provide those for the poor. That's our calling before God. Those are the right. works of our faith we're called to do. It's in doing those that we receive the graces of justification. It's not an automatic gift just because we happen to make sure we're t- to church on time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and so what, 
what James would, I mean, would certainly uh, commend to everything that you've just said because the Lord reminds us that it's we who were poor, but he became poor for our sakes. Paul says this in Second Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 8 or 9, I believe it is. He says that the, the Lord who was rich became poor for our sakes. So that it's the identification with those that are less fortunate, those that are in need of help. That's the call of the Christian. And that's what Paul, uh, that's what James, excuse me, that's what James says is the evidence that your faith is real. That's what, what you, the section you read, verses 15 and 16, uh, we have to be able to demonstrate uh, the reality of our faith by how we live and treat one another. The uh, verse 18 and following, but someone will say, hey, you have faith, I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. Now, what is he challenging there, Ken? Well, this is a difficult one because uh, let me uh, point out here that in verse 18, um, the, the words begin with, but um, but someone will say. In other words, there's an objection that's coming up, right? This is The objector is going to say something uh, to what James's argument is. Now, if that's the case, here's what we would have expected to read. Um, but someone will say, you have works, uh, but I have faith. Now, look at the words carefully in verse 18. That's the opposite. It says, you have faith and I have works. But what we expected it to say was, wait a minute, you have works, but I have faith. The objector is the person who's saying that faith is sufficient, right? But it doesn't say that. It says the opposite. It says, <laughs> but you have faith and I have works. So what does he mean? Well, um, Interesting little technical point here. The the way that we would expect it to read, you have works and I have faith. The problem with that is that it, that wording doesn't occur in any manuscript of the book of James. In other words, the manuscript traditions that make up the book of James are all uniform. It all says just exactly what you read. You have faith and I have works. You would expect so what it. What, your point is that you would expect it, as scholars would surmise, that somewhere along the line, someone would have had a problem with that and tried to correct it in a manuscript exactly. somewhere, but no one ever did. No, exactly. So what? That, then that raises the question. So we have to take the text just as it reads, just as you read it. You have faith. I have works. So what does it mean? Well, here's, I think, the best guess as to what, what the objector is saying. The person who's objecting to James is saying, look, there's two ways of salvation. There's faith and there's works. Okay. You have faith. I have works. And so that let, let's just agree to disagree. And now James is overcoming that objection by saying this, that you can see faith from a person's works, but you can't see a person's works just because they have faith. In other words, there's a priority to faith in the sense that it's the beginning, but works is the completion of faith. You see, Marcus, this is why the Catholic teaching on salvation is so important. It teaches exactly this, that we begin our journey of life with faith. We begin, the, we receive the gift of faith in baptism when we're infants, or we have to come to that later, but that's not enough. We have to go on to works, which are, as we said in a moment ago, outgrowth of faith. 
They're not an addition to faith. They're a natural outgrowth of faith. You know, it seems to me that back up a verse or talk, too, where he's saying, hey, if you've know, you got a brother or sister comes to you and they're poor and they don't have anything to wear, and uh, one of you says, hey, well, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need, what does it profit? And it reminds me again, Ken, as you were saying, there's these two extremes that we see in the missions field, we see in the work and the, on the mm. street corners where on the one hand you'll have people that will be on their soapbox proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, believe in Jesus, but they're not helping the poor. You know, yeah. it's, it's all about faith. Just believe in Jesus. But wait a second. You got to flesh that out. On the other extreme are the people that are helping the poor, giving them clothing, yeah. giving them food and all that. But they don't help them see that they're doing it in the name of Jesus. So yeah, they, the, the, and yeah, the one leads to the other. That's right. Yeah. And so James is saying they are both important. They're both important. You can't, you can't, you've got to, you've got to live out your faith in your words. So your tongue is used correctly, as he was getting at earlier, but your hands, your eyes, yeah. your feet, your whole faith must be expressed. And then he gets into verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you shallow man, that faith apart from works is barren? You know, this idea, as we've heard this many times, you know, I believe in God. Well, hey, so does the devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't do much good, does it? Well, see, I see verse 19 and verse 24 as being very closely related. You believe, verse 19, you believe that God is, there's one God? Well, you do well, but the devils believe that and tremble. And then verse 24 says, you see that a man is justified by faith, by works and not from faith alone. What he's saying is there, if you have faith that's simply an unfruitful faith, it doesn't grow into love and a service, it's not doing you any good. That's a false faith. A true faith leads in service to love to one another, and even of sacrificial faith. That's why he gives the example of Abraham offering up his son Isaac on the altar, because it's a sacrificial faith. Yeah, here uh, James, like Paul, uses Abraham and Rahab as the examples of faith and works. And it is interesting that where Abraham uses, I mean, where, where Paul uses Abraham's example of leaving Ur in obedience to God, so the faith of Abraham was demonstrated in his trusting of God to leave everything that he held familiar to go into the strange land, trusting that God would provide. Here James uses that, that wonderful example of Abraham's even ultimately trusting God to be willing to even kill his only son if yeah. that's what God called him to do. And, and Paul makes a similar comment. Remember in Romans 4, he said that that God knew that he was even able to raise him from the dead. So what, what he's saying here, this is, by the way, this is recorded for our audience in Genesis chapter 22. Remember the text where it says that he believed God. Abraham believed God. It was credited from, for, for righteousness. That's in Genesis 15. Paul says he did that before he was circumcised. In Genesis 17, Paul uh, Abraham is circumcised in Genesis 22 after Abraham is after Isaac is born Abraham is willing to offer him on you see the continuity here faith begins the journey 
it takes on the sign of faith, and then it's completed in the willing sacrifice that we're called to make as Christians. This is truly a fruitful faith. This is a faith that leads to hope and the hope that leads to love. That's the faith that justifies. I I find it fascinating also that James dropped in verse 25. In fact, I've even wondered, Ken, if in your scholarly work, whether any of the early manuscripts of James dropped out verse 25. And the reason is that James, he uses Abraham, great example, but then he pulls out of the the manuscripts the story of Rahab the harlot, justified by faith, reminds us of the woman caught in adultery. And we know the early church had a problem with that story in the Gospel of John and struggled whether it should be a part of John chapter 8 or not. Because, you know, here he's using the example of an of a far less than holy person, yet through her works of faith was therefore accepted by God and honored. Well, I think the example of Rahab in in this verse uh, 25 harkens back to verse 13 where it says that mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, the story of Rahab is a story of God's mercy. And Rahab's contribution to to her own salvation was very simply that she received the messengers, that she heard, she listened, she believed, and she did what was necessary based upon that faith. What this is saying is, here's Abraham, the father of faith, here's Rahab, the representative of paganism. So both Jew and Gentile pagans... Are, can be are saved in the same way, but how was Rahab saved? Well, in the concrete story of her of them coming into Jericho and she receiving the messengers. Suppose she hadn't received the messengers. Suppose she hadn't sent them out by another way and protected them. She would have been lost just like everybody else. So James is using the example. Hey, you have to do the same. It seems Ken that verse twenty six. We're running out of time is from a philosophical standpoint one of the strongest arguments for the unity of faith and works because we as human beings are not just a spirit trapped in a body we are united body and spirit exactly yeah yeah body that's right yeah faith because paul says i mean james says for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so faith apart from the works is dead we are that's why we emphasize the resurrection of the body not just more the resurrection of the soul faith apart from work it's one thing faith and our obedience of faith are one and the same and they well, must be this lived is up. A, this is a real call to live out our faith every day and through grace and prayer all right thanks Ken. we'll pick up on that next week thank you for joining us on deep in scripture we'll uh we'll try and live that out together you and us right in the grace of christ god bless you see you next week